I've no idea what I'm doing up here, because if I'm honest, I'm more of an expert at suffering avoidance, or shall we call it comfort engineering, than I am theodicy or suffering. I go to quite enormous lengths to avoid even the slightest discomfort. And most of the time, I manage remarkable control over my circumstances. I mean, we all try to live wrapped not just in cotton wool, but I looked at home, uh, and I have hypoallergenic, extra-fine, luxurious, quilted cotton wool with irresistibly cushiony softness. I got that last bit from my toilet paper. At night, I sleep between a mattress that contains over 2,000 springs and a duvet that contains more than 30 ducks. My car is basically seven armchairs, 14 cup holders, 10 airbags and three televisions. And almost all of us walk around with a supercomputer in our pocket. Our lives are a triumph of comfort and control. Graham Tomlin writes in page 107 of this chapter 5 of the book, we're used to a comfortable existence where it's possible to keep suffering at a distance for a while. And when it does intrude into our horizon, it can come as a shock. You see, it really doesn't matter what that suffering is. These are some genuine and really rather shocked tweets that I want to share with you. Had to queue at Sainsbury's salad bar for 15 minutes to find they had no egg or giant couscous. To say this has ruined Monday would be an understatement. Sabrina, peeling pomegranates has to be one of the most painstaking tasks in the world. Never tried it. I just had a cup of tea with soy milk. It was one of the worst decisions I've ever made in my life. Had to wake up for the ironing lady to come and collect our clothes. And she still isn't here. It's terrible suffering. I have a paper cut on my iPad finger. Every tweet is agony, but I persist bravely. Some people persevere in the face of suffering. It's not just Twitter and social media, though. Real media has to cover sometimes stories of just unbelievable suffering. This is from Cotswold Life magazine, where Claire covers the difficult story of one family's desperate search for a second pony. We also like to make sure that uh, we instruct others to make sure that there is no unnecessary suffering. This is a, a notice that you might see in the woods. Please do not leave food scraps in the woods. It is a huge problem for dogs on special diets. And just to terrify you with news from uh, closer to home, from our very own uh, Sussex Argus, my pate could have killed me. You see, any suffering, from pâté to pomegranates, is an abrupt intrusion, an unwelcome reminder that we're neither all-powerful nor all-knowing. This news is met with genuine fear, resentment, and occasionally anger. Or, if you're with Jeremy Clarkson, a punch in the face. I have deliberately chosen some trivial examples, not because I want to trivialise suffering, but because society's extreme reaction is not actually about suffering at all. It's about control. The issue is not about the size of our suffering. It's about the size of our God. See, somewhere along the way, we've promoted ourselves to princes and princesses as potentates of all we survey. If we consider God at all, we push him to the boundary of a kingdom that we control. 
Just the bits outside our sphere of influence. If you like, we treat God a bit like our insurance companies do. You know, that small clause about just the most unwelcome, unlikely, unpleasant events. We describe and limit those as simply the acts of God. Stephen Fry recently made headlines with a rant against God and suffering on Irish television. The YouTube clip of it has since been viewed over 7 million times. Many of you may have seen it or read about it. Tonight I'm going to show you an earlier video of Stephen from 2010, five years earlier. If you haven't seen the recent clip, his argument here is similar. If you have, it's fascinating to see how he uses the exact same spontaneous arguments five years earlier. In this clip, however, we see him go on to explain why he believes there's absolutely no need for or space for God in people's lives. I love how when people watch, I don't know, a David Attenborough or a Discovery Planet um, type thing, you know, where you see the absolute phenomenal majesty and complexity and bewildering beauty of nature and you stare at it and, and then and you, somebody next to you goes... And how can you say there's no God? Look at that. And then five minutes later, you're looking at the life cycle of a parasitic worm whose job is to bury itself in the eyeball of a little lamb and eat the, eat the eyeball from inside while the lamb dies in horrible agony. And then you turn to them and say, yeah, where is your God now? You know, I mean, you, got, you, can't, you can't just say there's a God because the world is beautiful. You have to account for bone cancer in children. You have to account for... The fact that almost all animals in the wild live under stress with not enough to eat and will die violent and bloody deaths. There is not, there is not any way that you can just choose the nice bits and say that means there is a God and ignore the true fact of what nature is. The wonder of nature is, must be taken in its totality and it is a wonderful thing. It is absolutely marvellous and the idea that an atheist or a humanist, if you want to put it that way, doesn't marvel and wonder at reality, at the way things are, is nonsensical. The point is we wonder all the way. We don't just stop and say, that which I cannot understand I will call God, which is what mankind has done historically. That's to say, God was absolutely everything a thousand or two thousand years ago because we understood almost nothing about the natural world. So it could all be God. And then as we understood more, God receded and receded and receded. So suddenly now he's barely anywhere. He's just in those things we don't understand, which are important. But uh, um, I think it just is such an insult to humanity. And the Greeks got it right. The Greeks understood perfectly that if there were divine beings, they are capricious, unkind, malicious mostly, temperamental, envious, and mostly deeply unpleasant. Because that, that you can say, well, yes, all right, if there's going to be God or gods, then you have to, con you have to admit that they're very, at the very least capricious. They're certainly not consistent. They're certainly not all loving. I mean, really, it's just not good enough, is it? So there you are. God is barely anywhere. Stevens often described as the smartest man on television sometimes by other people. He's undoubtedly highly educated, he's a fine broadcaster and a quick-witted comedian, but he's far from the first person to make the observation about God and suffering. Tonight we'll look at two answers. The first from the book of Job, 
And then as we look through the lens of the cross from the New Testament, we'll see a slightly more complete and restorative answer on the cross. But we do have to consider and accept the answer in Job. The book of Job was probably the first book ever written, a little over 4,000 years ago. It contains the longest speech in the Bible attributed to God's own voice. And that gives us a direct answer to Stephen's question and shows us that the Bible and God take suffering seriously. Given Stephen's argument that because we know everything there's no space for God, I don't think he's going to like the answer. We all know the story of Job, a wealthy, successful and faithful man who the devil wanted to test. Was he faithful only because he received such a rich measure of blessing from God? So in the story, Job suffers in every imaginable way. He loses his wealth, he loses his family, he loses his health and suffers terrible pain and disfigurement. His earthly friends are no help to him at all. Only his faith remains. But a less well-known part of the story, right at the end of the book, are several chapters where God speaks directly to Job and answers Stephen's questioning directly. In Job 38 we read, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. This is perfect then for Stephen Fry, who's famous as the man who on QI asks impossible questions. God has got some questions for Stephen and for you and me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me, if you understand, who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. I'm not adding those sarcastic bits. That's the voice of God. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid the cornerstone? And so it goes on and on for a couple of chapters. We don't have time to read it all, but don't worry, I've set these as the questions for you to answer in your groups later. You see, instead of a small, capricious God, Job is confronted by an enormous, gently sarcastic God. Instead of Stephen's God of a shrinking gap, we see a God who is sovereign over and in all things. He declares his power, his majesty, his authority, and he reminds us how absurdly limited our finite knowledge looks from an infinite, eternal perspective. The answer of Job is that we need to accept that God is so much bigger his perspective and wisdom so much greater. We cannot limit him to our own understanding, limited as that is to a tiny fraction of a tiny slice of time and space. We need to free God from our own constraints, surrender control, and put God back in sovereign authority over our lives. For this is Job's response in Job 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Job is faithful because Job's God is bigger than his circumstances. And he accepts that it is God, not Job, who is in control. At the very end, God rewards Job's faithfulness by restoring his family, his wealth and livestock twice over. 
Now, don't get me wrong, I love science and knowledge and engineering, and I even love Stephen Fry. But I also love and worship a huge, infinite God, not a God of shrinking gaps, but also not a God that is too wonderful for me to know, but a God I can know, thanks to the second answer to Stephen's question, the answer we see in the shape of the cross. This week, as we look at the cross and suffering, I want us to focus on three different dimensions, three different aspects of the way that Christ suffered. First, as he suffers rejection, betrayal and shame. Second, as he suffers the physical pain of the act of crucifixion. And finally, as he suffers death and separation from the Father at the end. You see, the Jews were waiting for a Messiah to save them from the oppressive rule of Rome, a king to lead them to victory. On Palm Sunday, they had hailed Jesus to be that Messiah and tried to crown him as king as he rode into Jerusalem. Yet by Friday, he was spat upon, beaten, condemned, betrayed and rejected. The cross was not just an instrument of torture. It was a hated symbol of the power and repression of Rome, but we also need to understand that it was the ultimate humiliation, the basest possible symbol of guilt and shame. In the message version of the reading that Dawn read, it says that we called Christ scum as he hung upon the cross. Let that shocking word resonate as a shocking part of the truth of the shame of the cross. Hebrews 13.13 highlights the significance of the uncleanliness. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. You see, the blood of the lamb was spilt inside the temple. The body, though, the container of all the filth, all that was unclean, contaminating and polluting, had to be taken outside the city to be burned. All who even handled the body of the lambs were considered unclean and couldn't re-enter the camp until they had been cleansed. But we are called to go outside the camp, to suffer the disgrace that he endured. This is what it means to be a Christian. Following Jesus means going with him to Calvary to head outside the camp. Paul says we're not giving up anything or suffering anything that will endure. But outside the camp, we look instead toward the eternal kingdom. We get a greater vision of the kingdom to come. We must give up what is temporary. We must suffer what is temporary for a clearer view of eternity. I've been fortunate enough a couple of times to see the night sky uh, from a truly dark place, you know, from an island in the middle of nowhere or a boat in the middle of the ocean. And there are so many thousands more stars above us, even as we sit in Linfield. The hundred or so you can see are just the hundred you can see because the lights, even in a village like Linfield, is polluted by the streetlights and by the nearby towns. The other stars are all there. 
And when you go to a place of dark sky, you can see the entire Milky Way unfold around you. Thousands of stars fill the sky in every direction. To see our lives clearly and purely in the light of the resurrection, we're called to leave the glare, the noise, the pollution of the camp. To a dark place of contamination and uncleanliness outside the city, where at the foot of the cross we will find a light shining in the darkness. In Luke 9.23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. It's a tough ask. We get our word excruciating from two Latin words. The word ex meaning out of, cruciere, the cross. So a death on the cross was so painful that even to this day, thousands of years later, any pain that causes extreme suffering is still named after it. Jesus, both on the cross and in the punishment he faced beforehand, experienced just this excruciating suffering. Perhaps more than in any triumph over empires or battle against religious powers, it is in his physical suffering on the cross that the reality, the deeply personal nature of Christ's humanity is most easily identified with. We will sing it later as we close. It was my sin that held him there. God allowed it. Jesus accepted it. But we flogged him. I crucified him. And all the while he suffered, it was my sin that held him there. The cross, you see, is a mirror. Not that I might see myself in Christ, but that at that moment, he is me. Jesus was not punished unfairly. He did not innocently suffer. He took to the cross and bore that pain as my substitute. It was my sin upon him that held him there. His suffering as my substitute was warranted that my grace that our freedom might be purchased. Just as our disgrace is temporary, so the cross declares is physical pain. Any pain we may endure for the coming kingdom is temporary, for the kingdom will bring relief. We read in Revelation, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Jesus does not ask us to follow him to the cross because he wants us to know more and more suffering, but that we may know the Father more. For the whole purpose of the cross was to restore us to the Father. And for that, Jesus had to experience and defeat suffering far greater than shame or physical pain. For on the cross, Jesus suffered the very thing he came to save us from. This was the most extreme suffering that Jesus faced. And the one that we should most identify with the cross. For God so loved the world... He allowed his one and only son to suffer death and to be separated from him. Why? So that you and I would never have to. 
Jesus does not ask us to take up our cross and follow him because our suffering is somehow worth something to God. But because knowing God is worth more than anything else to us. The people had been waiting for a Messiah, for someone who would lead them to victory and defeat the forces of Rome. Instead, the king of the Jews took his final breath upon the cross. It was finished, paid in full. On page 123, Graham reminds us that you cannot look at suffering in the lens of the cross without seeing the cross in the light of the resurrection. The enemies of all that is good, he writes, had done their worst and they could do no more. And you know what? For three days it looks as if Rome and religion have won. But evil and suffering are only temporary. Life will win in the end, as it did three days later. It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter's asleep. Judas is betraying. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate's struggling. The council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying. They don't even know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary's crying. Peter is denying. But they don't know that Sundays are coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat my Jesus. They robe him in scarlet. They crown him with thorns. But they don't know that Sundays come. It's Friday. See Jesus walking to Calvary. His blood dripping. His body stumbling. And his spirit's burdened. But you see, it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The world's winning. People are sinning. And evil's grinning. It's Friday. The soldiers nailed my Savior's hands to the cross. They nailed my Savior's feet to the cross. And then they raised him up next to criminals. It's Friday. But let me tell you something. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king. And the Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved. But they don't know. It's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross, feeling forsaken by his father, left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? Oh, it's Friday. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The earth trembles. The sky grows dark. My king yields his spirit. It's Friday. Hope is lost. Death has won. Sin has conquered. 
and Satan's just a laughing. It's Friday. Jesus is buried. A soldier stands guard, and a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday. It is only Friday. Sunday is a coming. See, the good news as we follow Jesus outside the camp is that yes, rejection and disgrace are real, but it is temporary. The kingdom, the victory of the Messiah are eternal. When we're asked to take up our cross and follow him, it's not a threat, it's a promise. Beyond any temporary pain and suffering is a greater God and an everlasting kingdom. We live in a world where it is still Friday, and so we may suffer the same rejection and excruciating pain that he did. But God does not ask us to walk the path or suffer alone. It is a path that Jesus walked ahead of us to blaze a trail, to lead us to the Father, and to know that Sunday's coming. Already today, we need never know that greatest suffering of all. We need never be separated from God. We need never not know our Father. We're also taught that all other suffering is alien to God, unwelcome, temporary and defeated. Stephen Fry struggles with his faith that God is small. He's squeezed him out to the very margins of existence. You see, for atheists, Jesus was defeated that Friday. Death and suffering won. In the world, it is always Friday, but we have a hope and a promise to sustain us, even as we endure suffering and rejection today. The cross declares Sunday is coming. Amen.